Welcome to the Cop Doc Podcast. This podcast explores police leadership issues and innovative ideas. The Cop Doc shares thoughts and ideas as he talks with leaders in policing, communities, academia, and other government agencies. And now, please join Dr. Steve Morielli and industry thought leaders as they share their insights and experience on the Cop Doc Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Steve Morielli. You're listening to the Cop Dog Podcast, and I am very, very happy to have a very good friend and colleague, Jim McDonald, a former sheriff at Los Angeles County, who also was the chief in Long Beach, and before that, the first assistant chief at Los Angeles Police Department, where he worked himself through the ranks. So I want to welcome you, Jim, and I want to want you to give uh, the listeners an opportunity to know a little bit more about you. How did you get into policing and how long you've been at it? Yeah. Hey, Steve, thanks for having me on. Uh, got into policing just about 40 years ago. Um, went to, grew up in the Boston area, uh, went to college at St. Anselm in New Hampshire, majored in criminal justice, uh, expected or hoped anyway to, uh, to go into police work in the Boston area or, or at least in the New England area. At the time, there were a number of factors, a tax cutting measure and a number of other issues that were um, going on. Uh, in the area that did not allow for my hiring in a timely manner after graduating from uh, college. So I looked around the country to see where there was opportunity and a good reputation. And uh, with a Boston mindset, not really expecting to get on a job somewhere else because I didn't know anybody. And that was very much uh, a factor uh, in what happened in my experience. But I gave it a shot, figuring that if I didn't at least try, I'd be kicking myself for the rest of my life for maybe what could have been. And so I looked at LAPD uh, that they had a good reputation and they were hiring at the time. And so I, I came out and took the testing, out-of-town testing. They accelerated it, went back, finished college, and, uh, and got a letter from them saying, you know, you did well in the testing, come back out to finish it. Uh, so I did. As when I graduated, I went out with two suitcases, a gym bag, and 400 bucks to my name, uh, and didn't know a soul in uh, California. But figured, you know what? I'm I'm young, and this is the time to try and do whatever I can. And so I I kind of thought big and and went out and gave it a shot, and it worked out. And I I started the academy uh, a couple of weeks later. And uh, 29 years later, left the LAPD as the, the number two uh, person in the organization uh, to then take on uh, a position as chief of Long Beach and then later ran for sheriff and, uh, and worked in that role for four years. And, and for the last two years now, working as a consultant uh, on public safety issues on a variety of different uh, formats. So the experience you've had in policing from from a street officer to the chief executive at major organizations. When you're looking at them now, just two years away, uh, what, what do you see as the major, maybe the three issues that police are confronting? And do you think they need help? Do you think they're moving in the right direction? Do you think they're communicating well enough, uh, given the pushback that has come from across the country? You know, 
this has been a very difficult year for everyone, but I think uh, as difficult a year as uh, as I can remember or even imagine uh, for those engaged in policing, because it seems no matter what you do, you're wrong. And, uh, you know, there have been cases, uh, particularly use of force cases, where the officer or deputy were, were left with no option other than to use force and, and then did so in what appears to be uh, an appropriate manner. Uh, and still they're vilified uh, for the fact that they used force. And I think um, that's something that we as a society uh, need to reevaluate where we are on the issue of what is the role of police in society? Um, we have asked so much from police for so long that the expectation has become that when there's a, a problem, you know, give it to the cops, let them handle it. And the police are, are, you know, amazingly capable to do a lot of different things. But the more things you add to the pile, the less chance there are that you're going to get proficiency on everything you do. And a, an ex prime example would be dealing with uh, those who are in a mental health crisis. And when you think about what we ask of a police officer, they're dispatched to a scene of somebody who's acting out based on their illness. Uh, sometimes the behavior will be um, anything from disorderly to violent. And they get there and with very little information uh, are tasked with, you know, restoring order uh, from chaos in some cases and dealing with somebody who is not rational, who um, does not respond to direction and potentially is hurting someone else or themselves. And so the officers have uh, very little latitude in, in, in what their options are. They can't watch somebody uh, hurt someone else. They can't watch somebody actively hurt themselves. And so they're tasked with intervening in a situation, again, with probably less information available to them than anyone would have in most any other profession before they get involved. And we expect them to be right 100% of the time and that the outcome will be optimal each time. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. And so when I, when I think about that and I think about what the expectations are for somebody whose requirements for entry into the profession uh, are most often a high school diploma, uh, more often than not, uh, the individual brings with them more than that from an education experience training standpoint, uh, but that's all that's required. And so when we put somebody through a six month academy and some places it's less than that um, and expect to give them all the skills and tools they need to be successful in the field where we have conditioned the public that no matter what your problem, dial 911 and we'll respond and quickly and take care of your problem uh, and yet we put this generally uh, young person, 20, early 20s, in a car after having maybe spent a short time with a training officer, uh, some period of time in the academy, and expect them to, uh, you know, have a 100% success rate. I, it's, uh, it's not reasonable. But yet when you look at the rate we do have, given those circumstances, it's amazing how successful we are that we hire good people. We hire people with a good heart who generally speaking uh, are compassionate, are public service oriented and wanna do the right thing and, and help people ultimately. And so we get the outcomes we get where I would say probably 98% of the time when, when we roll on a call, 
the outcome is uh, is very good, that the person is taken into custody if that has to be done uh, without a use of force. And, uh, you know, things work out as well as you could hope for, given the circumstances. Uh, in that 2% or less uh, of those cases where force, some force is used, uh, that's the, the cases that get all the attention. And certainly when you think about uh, this profession and how important it is to society, it's understandable why those that 2% of the cases are given such critical uh, evaluation and examination, because what we do is important to society, and it has to be done in an optimal way each and every time in order for us to sustain any credibility we have with the public, because the public does judge the profession based on the actions of a few, or maybe based on one interaction in their own life with police. And they will judge uh, everyone else, almost a million others in this profession uh, to that standard. So it's critical that each of us uh, be an ambassador for the profession, for our organization, for our community. Um, and that's a lot to ask when you look at, uh, you know, the entry level requirements and and really the uh, the job itself. When I, when I look at what's happened in the last year in particular, it's very painful after 40 years of, uh, of watching the field of participating in the field and just seeing a deterioration in support. And it seemingly uh, accelerated almost overnight um, this past year. And couple that with the, the um, the issues of dealing with COVID, you know, a worldwide pandemic at the same time we're having uh, protest marches and and the the dialogue uh, amongst so many in the nation to defund or disband the police, uh, which to anyone in the profession it makes absolutely no sense at all, and so predictably we're seeing crime go up, uh, homicide in many cases spiking uh, to ten year highs, and when I think about just the, the stats that I can quote in, in Los Angeles, uh, in 1993, and going back to the 80s and uh, in the early 90s, the level of violence was, uh, was awful. But I think about the city of Los Angeles in 1993 had just under 1,200 homicides. And we have worked so hard in the policing profession, uh, in city government, and our community partners in order to be able to help drive down those numbers uh, with a number of different strategies uh, across the country where the success rate has become instead of almost 1200 murders uh, last year in LA, there were about 260. And so when you think about change. that success, yeah, significant, we should be celebrating that and trying to replicate it and, and take it even uh, to greater lengths. Uh, and instead that's almost forgotten and now we're starting to see uh, an up significant uptick in murders in many of our major urban areas across America. Uh, we know we know what works. We know what doesn't work. Uh, we have to do a better job in marketing what we do and who we are to the public that we serve, because none of us can be successful unless we have the support of the public. Well, I know, uh, I know, you know, I I know in uh, with COVID, uh, so many, so many um, uh, first line. Uh, personnel, healthcare workers, police, 
uh, public safety people were held to such high heroic status for a while, and then very quickly, now they're, vil- they're vilified, which which is troubling. I want to switch gears for you, because something you just said talked about your partners. But at what point in time did you, uh, as a young officer, decide that you wanted to throw your hat in the ring, um, test, and look to become a supervisor and later a, a, in a leader position? You know, when I, when I went on the job, it was, um, you know, it was, uh, a goal of mine to work homicide. And if I could work homicide in Los Angeles, I felt like that would be uh, a tremendous challenge, uh, very rewarding. Um, and something that, you know, was, was different every day was, uh, exhilarating. And at the same time, you felt like you were doing something very beneficial to the community and giving the victim's family some closure. Um, and I thought that would be a long way down the road to be able to be able to achieve that assignment. And as it turns out, uh, and, you know, unfortunately, I guess, because of the murder rate in L.A. at the time, uh, there was a high demand for homicide detectives. And I had come from the gang enforcement side of the house. And so I worked gang homicides initially, uh, and then later, uh, divisional homicide. And when I, when I think back on, uh, on those days, the frequency of occurrence was such that it provided opportunities for those who wanted to be able to get into that line of investigation. I were afforded that at an earlier point in their career than otherwise would have been possible. But what that did for me was give me the experience that I was looking for, but also open my eyes to the fact uh, that there are other jobs out there where you have the ability to be able um, to exert whatever leadership you bring to the table or whatever experience you have to share with others and to be able to have a greater impact on not only the work that you're doing, but the work of others um, in this profession. And so I, I started to look at um, I made detective when I worked uh, organized crime and then homicide. Um, and then later looked at taking the sergeant exam and uh, thought that I would do that maybe for a year to get uh, dual status as a sergeant detective and then go back to detectives. Um, and once I got into the role of sergeant, I realized at that time uh, just how much of an impact you can have. I still would argue that there is no more important job in policing than first line supervision. You have the ability to be able to guide and mentor and train and, uh, and to be able to shape uh, police officers who are coming uh, on the job, who are cutting their teeth, who are uh, out there trying to do a very, very difficult job in complex circumstances um, in a way where no one can do it on their own. Uh, the things that we ask cops to deal with today are so complex uh, that you need to be able to seek other resources to be able to get the right answers, to be able to bring the right resources to bear on whatever the issue you're dealing with is. And so a sergeant, I believe, uh, has the ability to be able to provide those resources, to know what's available out there beyond what they have in their individual toolbox. And then, uh, you know, as time went on, opportunities came and other tests came along. And I, I figured they'll let me know when I've gone far enough. And, uh, and I continued to take tests and uh, some worked out and some didn't. And uh, 
I think the lesson I learned was never give up. Um, if it doesn't work this time, give it a shot next time, study harder, do, do, uh, more in the way of preparation as far as the right assignments, the right, uh, uh, material to study and, and just exposure. Uh, and so much of success in policing, like any field, I would say is having a good, strong network, uh, being, being out there and knowing the players. Uh, but at the same time, also, uh, realizing that policing is and always will be a people business. And every every day is an interview. And everyone you meet is an opportunity to be able to uh, show how proud you are of your organization, how much you care about the people you deal with, uh, both the people you have the, uh, the privilege to work with and lead, as well as the people who you're dealing with, who oftentimes on the worst day of their life, that you can hopefully help make that a little bit more manageable for them. They'll never forget that. And that, that is something that, uh, that carried me through some, some times when you think, why are we doing this? Yes. Because of I want to, I want to ask you this about, you know, so when you first get in, you're a Sergeant, you, you really, and, and I know you, I, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on this, you know, the difference between managing and leading. And, uh, in some cases, the job of the first line supervisor is first to manage the group right? Manage a group of people, make sure they're doing their job. They're, they're taking care of their documents, the response, they're responding, uh, they're backing each other up. But at some point in time, whether as, as a Sergeant, uh, or, you know, once you, once you get your feet under you or a Lieutenant or a captain, that leadership becomes important. Do you see yourself as a mentor and a teacher, or did you see yourself as a mentor and a teacher to others? You know, I, I hopefully still do. Uh, I think that any of us who have experience, uh, training, education, uh, we've been through something before that we have the ability to be able to share with others, that we're all teachers, we're all mentors, we're all supervisors, we all have a role to play where we can help others do their job uh, better, safer, and and hopefully get a better outcome. Um, so you know, I, I do, I did and do see myself that way. And I hope everybody does because somebody who has 20 years or 20 minutes on the job, they have something to offer someone else if we're willing to listen. Uh, and oftentimes I think we miss opportunities because we discount somebody as being a leader or a mentor or a teacher because they don't have as much time on the job as someone else, or they, or they don't have the rank that someone else has. Uh, leadership is not about the, you know, the stars on your collar or the stripes on your arm, uh, or the, the amount of time you have on the job. Uh, leadership is about looking for opportunities to do the right thing, to share what you have with others and to be able to rally the strength and, and, um, experience of other people to be able to share a common vision, to work together toward achieving a common goal. And if you can do it and, and have fun in the process and, and maintain good morale, um, all of that is, is, you know, what leadership is all about, to be able to do things the right way, which management is, but also to do it in a way where you enjoy doing it and you feel you're working on something bigger than ourselves, any one of us, and working for a greater cause. You know, it's interesting because as, as a, as a, 
university professor now, I find that my success is not about me anymore. It's about students and about the success of the students. And for you, I suppose, as, as, as a chief and as a sheriff, it was a, you're only as good as your people, presumably, and, and developing those other people. Going back in time, can you tell me a situation where you made a mistake as a new leader and what you might have learned by it. In other words, maybe you began to change the way you approach things. Eh, that didn't work. Does that happen? Something oh, gosh, gotcha. yeah. Oh, I think if you don't learn from every experience and interaction you have, you always have an opportunity to be able to say, you know what, I've could, I could have done that differently. I could have done that better. Uh, and if you debrief with yourself uh, every interaction that you have to think uh, whether whether at work or at home, uh, or in your interaction with your friends or, or just going to, uh, you know, the store. Uh, we interact with people all the time and sometimes to the point where it becomes something we don't even think about. Um, but particularly those who are wearing a uniform or who are clearly the police um, to whoever they're dealing with, you have an obligation to realize that that interaction is a very big deal to the person you're dealing with. You may, for instance, on a traffic stop, you may stop 20 vehicles a day and, and interact with the people in those cars. Um, but for that person, they may only get stopped once in their life. And so they remember everything from that interaction. Every word said, the, the tone of the voice, the, the facial expressions, uh, things that you don't even give a second thought to. This is just another stop for you or another opportunity to talk to somebody for you, but to them, they remember it all. So we have to keep in mind that uh, we represent something much bigger than ourselves, that that badge on your chest, that uniform, that patch represents something bigger than any of us. And to put it in perspective, that it represents all those who came before us and gave, in some cases, everything. All those who will follow us, uh, who will wear that badge and that uniform and that patch. And so we have a tremendous responsibility to be the very best we can be in every interaction we have with people, uh, and particularly uh, when we're in uniform or representing our department, our city, our profession. So when you when you talk about that, you've you know you've walked into to a, a couple of different situations. You could have stayed with uh, Los Angeles and been a sort of a, a a one man band, a one man show for LAPD only. But you moved. You moved to Los uh, to to Long Beach, and then you 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 moved to the sheriff's department. Along the way, how important was it for you to listen to what was going on? you know, to hear what others were rather than saying, I know what's right, but more importantly, setting expectations and, and new accountability standards. Yeah. You know, when you, um, when you go into a police organization in particular, um, obviously personnel, um, the HR process will do a background investigation on you, um, so that you can, you can get, uh, the job. But every officer, every employee of that organization does their own background investigation on you. They call their friends. They call anybody that has interacted or known you over the years. And they make their own assessment based on what their friends think, what the people that they, that they believe in think about you as a person, you as a leader. So you could have been a one-trick pony and just stayed with Los Angeles Police Department 
for your entire career, but instead you chose to move on. You went to Long Beach and then later as the sheriff. And those are two new organizations. And the question that I was wondering was, you know, how did you, how did you approach it? How did you walk in? Where did you walk in with a chip on your shoulder saying, I know what's best for you, or did you do it a little bit differently in, t- in terms of going on a listening circuit and before setting your vision and before dictating your expectations? You know, how did you approach that? Were you a good listener? No, thank you. I think that for any leader, uh, it's critical that you be a good listener, that you take in a lot more information, intelligence, if you will, before you act, before you uh, give an opinion, uh, before you set a vision on what you want to do. What you want to do is mildly interesting if you don't have uh, the background on the circumstances that the people are working under that you're going to lead that if you don't know what the culture of the organization is, the culture of the city, and all of the things that are the intangibles but are so important, the customs, the traditions, what what is viewed as sacred within the organization, you need to do a lot of listening to be able to take all of that in. Because even if you think you know the organization, and, and I worked at LAPD for almost 30 years, right next door to Long Beach PD and right next door to the Sheriff's Department, but you don't know that organization until you get inside it. And you never really know the organization the way somebody who grew up in the organization will, or have the sensitivities about certain things within the organization or the history or the relationships. So I think you go in humble and you go in realizing there's so much you don't know that you want to learn. And I think the tone you set about being open to advice to, to seeking out people who, who are stakeholders, people who have, you know, have had an impact. And I, when I say that, I don't just mean your predecessor or the people who worked at the highest levels of the organization, but people throughout the organization, both sworn and civilian, people in city government who've worked alongside the department. It's, it's important to know what they think of the interaction they've had with the police, what the relationship is. And there's opportunities in most cases to be able to improve that. And communication is a big part of that. And then, you know, clearly setting expectations uh, right from the beginning of, you know, the, the things that we all hold dear as police officers, that they're doing their work in a respectful, professional manner, uh, a constitutional manner, and a manner in which that whether it's on video or whether it's uh, not, that for anybody who was to see that, they will look at it and say, you know what, they did a good job. It was very difficult circumstances, but based on what they had, but based on what they knew, they did the best job they could. And I think if we all seek to, you know, have that kind of an outcome, no matter what we're doing, whether it's a field interaction or whether it's dealing with somebody on a disciplinary issue, dealing with somebody on a community relations issue, or all of the many things that all of us deal with on a daily basis, that if we go into it thinking, you know what, this is important, uh, I think then we get a better outcome than if we get tired, we get complacent, we get jaded, and we just look at things, I got to check the box and do this, or I don't want to go to this community meeting, you know, these people are not going to be friendly toward me or the department. Um, That's an opportunity. But we don't often, or too often, I think we don't look at it that way. 
And we look at it as, you know, I just got to get through this and then get on to the next thing. And you have so many things to, uh, each day that you have to address that it's hard to maintain that because there is a fatigue factor uh, and we're all human beings at the end of the day. And so it's, it's easy to say this, it's harder to do it, mm-hmm. but I think people who are looked upon uh, in re- retrospect as the best leaders are those who can keep that mindset that every day, every interaction is critically important for themselves, for their their organization, and for our profession. That's great advice. Uh, you know, you you have me thinking about a number of things about, and one of them is what you know what your core principles, the two or three things that guide you that are that are core to you. What would they be? Thanks. Well, I think uh, being true to your own values. Um, you know, remembering where you came from, uh, not thinking that you're anything special because of stripes or, or bars or stars, uh, that you're doing a job and that you're representing the people of the jurisdiction uh, you work for. We should, we should expect to be treated respectfully, we professionally, but I think too often that there's a fine line between command presence, which is critical, and arrogance or the perception of arrogance Mm -hmm. by uh, people that we may come in contact with. Mm -hmm. And I think if you were to talk to people who are the most critical of police officers or or the policing profession, you would hear that as a complaint, that I didn't like the way I was treated. I didn't like the tone. I didn't like all of that. And granted, send police officers into the very worst of circumstances. And it's very hard to maintain that level of professionalism, of patience, of all the things that we ask. But police are are special people in that the the bar is higher. The the standards are very high. And while kind of funny to say, don't expect to be treated special. At the same time, the job that our people do, and when you think about how many police officers there are in this nation, about 900,000 out of a population of 325 million. That's about one third of 1% of our population is charged with maintaining the safety of everyone else. Yes. And so it is a special group. It is a select few, relatively speaking, and we do ask an awful lot. But I think our own attitudes for our own mental health, for the image of the organization uh, and our own reputation, critical that we constantly reevaluate for ourselves, you know, how did I cross in that interaction? And could I have done it different to get back to your point about debriefing each situation. Yep. And the reflection. So we're running short on time to, to stay within the 30 or so minutes, but there's, there's a few things that I, I would uh, like to say for another, for another day. And that is to start t- talking about how you, how you began to rent and ended running meetings, whether you were asking questions and listening, but that's for another day. But what books do you seek out to read, sort of draw some of your inspiration from? You know, I like, uh, I like books on leadership. I like books, not necessarily on police leadership, but uh, leadership in the, in the business context, leadership in the military context, mm-hmm. and people who have overcome major challenges. And those challenges may be, you know, in a military context, uh, a, big, a big battle, or it may be challenges dealing with political situations that uh, somebody was able to overcome and get the job done. Or it could be personal challenges that so many people face, whether they're physical challenges or, or dealing with issues that they didn't think they could get through and that it took a lot of fortitude to be able to get through it and then to be able to share with others what they went through in the hopes that they'll make their journey a little bit easier. 
those kind of inspirational books, leadership books, I think uh, are of tremendous value. Last question. If you had a chance to sit down for a conversation with someone who is either famous, alive, or past, who might that be? Who would you want to pick their brain to, you know, to, to understand how they did what they did? I don't know that I have an individual that I could identify, but our founding fathers in general, and maybe many of them, to just see what they were thinking and how they came up with the Constitution that we still hopefully live by today and the Declaration of Independence, the challenges that they faced, but the, the systems that they were able to put in place, things that are the foundation for our freedom. Uh, to think back in, in a relatively short number of years, they were able to come together and to be able to give us the building blocks for what we enjoy today. And we refer back on a daily basis, and particularly those judges and, and uh, attorneys who are looking for guidance from, from the Constitution and from what was penned by our founding fathers, and to be able to have that as applicable today as it was 250 years ago. Yeah, that's an interesting thought because you, you think about Peel's principles and that they still are applicable today and that we have survived that long. That's that's very interesting. You know, history history sometimes repeats itself and it certainly was challenged now. But anyway, I need to close out, but I want to say thank you. There's so much more that we would we want to talk about, I want to talk about with you, and I'm hoping that you'd be willing to join us again. My parting uh, comment, I think, would be for those who are doing the job. God bless you. Hang in there. We're going to get through this. This is something that we see in our history in uh, in a cyclical way. The late 60s were probably the last time we saw it the way it is now. Today, we're dealing with social media, which is an accelerator. But the public needs the police. The police need the public. We have to work together collaboratively to be successful. And I think we're in a period right now where some don't see that, but they will soon. I hope so. Well, I want to thank you. We've been talking to Jim McDonald, the retired sheriff from Los Angeles County, uh, a New Englander himself. And I want to thank you for joining me, Jim. I appreciate it. This is Steve Morielli, the Cop Doc Podcast. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the Cop Doc Podcast with Dr. Steve Morielli. Steve is a retired law enforcement practitioner and manager turned academic and scholar from Worcester State University. Please tune into the Cop Doc Podcast for regular episodes of interviews with thought leaders in policing.